Our Father, we know that in many parts of the world, people are meeting in far more adverse conditions than we, and they're doing so with great joy and fervency of spirit. And Lord, we really have so much to give you thanks for. First of all, because we have freedom, and second of all, because we have so many physical uh, factors that make life more comfortable. And we're just uh, blessed every day to know that you are living in our hearts, that you are loving us, and that you're guiding us, that you're forgiving us, Lord. We are in constant need of that cleansing by your Spirit. And so, Lord, we would submit to your Spirit's authority this morning. We know that the Word is the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, and we ask that it will touch our hearts and lives today and make us different people. We aren't here for an academic exercise, Lord, but to hear what you would say to us to change our hearts and lives. Lord, bless throughout the Sunday school this morning. Bless in the children's classes and in the junior high and senior high college and the other adult classes. We ask that you will be specially present in each class. In Christ's name, amen. All right, if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 47, verse 27, we'll finish off this chapter today. Genesis 47, 27. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it, and were fruitful and became very numerous. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. We have in verse 27 a summary of 17 years of Israel's sojourn in the land of Egypt. This is, of course, just the introductory years, the, the, the kind of the halcyon years, if you will. Israel had settled down to live in Goshen. You know, all the preliminary factors are in, and, and they're living there now in Goshen. It, the, the original intent, of course, of the move was simply to be where there was a food supply until the drought was over. And the thought certainly was, we will return to the land of Canaan. But as it turned out, they are remaining in Egypt, even to the point in which they are acquiring property, which was not the original intent at all. Remember, we, we talked about when they were first moving or first making contact with Pharaoh through Joseph, the idea was, we're just going to sojourn, we're just going to be here for a little while, but now we're told they are acquiring property in Egypt, which indicates a more permanent settlement on the part of Israel. Now, certainly one of the reasons for this was that Jacob wanted to remain near his son Joseph. Joseph wasn't about to, to, to what's the word I want, uh, resign. There's, that's the word I want. Resign his prime ministership there in the land of Egypt and move back to Canaan with his family. 
His job was not done. In fact, as far as he knew, God had made him prime minister in perpetuity, at least as long as he would live. And so Jacob wanted to remain near his son. So he makes no effort to return to Canaan. There's no talk even, apparently, about returning to Canaan, at least none that shows up in Scripture, although we can imagine that they probably did. I, I'm certain that, uh, you know, Egypt was a strange land. Uh, strange people, strange customs. The territory that was around them looked different. It was so flat compared to the hill country in which they lived at uh, Hebron. And so there, there was probably a sense of wanting to move after the drought was over, but they did not. They remained. Now, in verse 27 also, we have a statement which indicates that God's blessing was very specifically upon the nation of Israel because we're told that they multiplied and became numerous. Now, this is speaking down the line, of course, not just talking of these 17 years, but looking beyond these 17 down through the hundreds of years that would follow when the nation would literally explode in the landscape and spread across Egypt, at least the northern part of Egypt. This combination of terms, as you read in this passage, you discover the, the word fruitful and, and the word numerous. Now, they're, they're very similar words in the Hebrew. Para and Rabbah uh, are, are very similar words, and, and they're often paired together in, in the Old Testament. And they're, they're repeated several times, in fact, in Genesis. The original statement, using those two terms paired together, fruitful and numerous, was in God's promise to Abraham, and you may remember that back in chapter 17, when God said to Abraham, I will multiply you exceedingly. Now, that was quite a promise to someone who had no, no children, you know, and, and no seeming prospect of having children. Uh, his wife was barren, and, and yet God said, I will multiply you exceedingly. And, and then he went on to say, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Quite a promise. And, and you just have to realize, we have to realize that no, no matter how many times Abraham goofed up, that he could believe God on the basis of nothing that he saw, that this would be true, was a statement of great honor for Abraham. Similar wording was found in Isaac's blessing upon Jacob. When Jacob was about to flee to Paden Aram for fear of his brother Esau, Isaac blessed him, and he said, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, make you numerous. Uh, this, of course, coming from Isaac, uh, Isaac to Jacob. Now, Isaac was not particularly fruitful either. You know, he had two sons. And so, you know, it, it's carrying the promise on, saying, all right, Jacob, the promise is in your hands now, and, and God's blessing is, is upon you. And then finally... Uh, that was in the 28th chapter of Genesis. You may remember in the 35th chapter of Genesis when Jacob returned to Canaan. God blessed him as he returned to Bethel and God spoke to him and said, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Now for Jacob that wouldn't be quite so hard to believe because Jacob had quite a few children. You know, he had a dozen sons and, and some daughters. And, and so the possibility of, of a fairly large group coming from this was a little bit more believable, of course, with Jacob. And so here we have this repeated promise to Abraham, to Isaac, 
and to Jacob, be fruitful be, and multiply, be numerous. And, you know, to us today, if God were to say, be fruitful and multiply and be numerous, we'd say, what for? <laughs> you know, we, we'd wonder why. We live in a, in a world in which the world, I mean, people have multiplied. And there are some today who are trying to put the brakes on that and have been doing so for several decades or attempting to do so. But uh, in, to us, when God says that, he's not referring specifically to how many children you have physically, but to the spiritual children that may be brought into the world through our ministry. We are to be fruitful, and we are to multiply too, in the sense of reaching out and touching the lives around us and bringing people in as children of God. Well, there weren't any other children of God that we know of at this particular time. Now, the scripture is silent about the rest of the world. The scripture doesn't talk about what's going on in the Americas or what's going on in China or what's going on in Southern Africa or someplace else. The focus is, is on this nation, and, and we thus assume that although God is faithful and uh, the scripture indicates in the first chapter of Romans that there is a witness of God in nature, and Ecclesiastes tells us that the eternity has been set in the heart of every human being. And so there is a natural sense of the divine. But, but we don't know how many of those people were touched by God in a special way to come to belief outside of the development of Israel. Now you've all heard, as I have, of, of missionaries and you've read accounts of missionaries going into an area that had never had a missionary before and they already had some kind of a basic idea of God and of Christ and, and of the basic teachings of Christianity because someone had brought it and, uh, you know, that person was, was almost a semi-legendary person and it could simply have been an angel of God in the flesh. We don't know. But somehow God is faithful. And, and anyone who, who would hear and who would believe will get a chance to hear and will get a chance to believe because God is perfectly righteous and just. But the focus is on the word as it would be brought to the human race through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because the scripture tells us that it would be through Abraham and his seed that all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so we are experiencing the outgrowth of that today. We've been blessed because Abraham was blessed in that we've heard the word and we have been transformed. And so we read of this repeated promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And what's very, very interesting is in the physical sense that would the initial fulfillment would occur in Egypt of all places. It would be in Egypt that the country would multiply, the nation would multiply and become very numerous. We'd become more numerous, of course, later in time but uh, would emerge from Egypt already a great nation. Great nation. In fact, that's one of the big problems some people have with the whole story of the Exodus is how you move so many people through that kind of landscape. But, of course, it can be done in the power of God. Before Jacob had died at 147 years of age, his family had increased to 70 persons, as we've already noted, exclusive of the daughters-in-law. So there were obviously you know, 80-some people altogether attached to his family, counting the daughters-in-law. Jacob thus was seeing a beginning of the fulfillment. This, this group, this, I mean, if, if you and I, no, maybe you do, maybe you go to a family reunion and there are 70 or 80 people running around. Uh, but uh, if you were to go to Setch and see Setch, you'd say, wow, this is all my responsibility. I mean, if they're all your descendants, not, not cousins and uncles and, and aunts and so forth, but descendants, 
children and, and daughters-in-law and sons-in-law and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, then you have something, I suppose, to uh, tell others about. In the last years of Jacob's life in Egypt, he experienced great blessing. There were, such, there were years of such contrast to what he had just experienced the previous 25 years in the tragedies that we've already outlined and talked about, particularly, of course, what seemed to be the tragedy of Joseph. But now we have a complete reversal of fortune, if you will. It's obviously not fortune. It's simply the blessing of God. But first of all, at the very most, the famine didn't last two to three years beyond the time that Jacob and his family moved into Egypt. And so most of those 17 years would, be, uh, would experience prosperity. Prosperity would return. The rains would come. The river would rise. The floods would occur again. And, and the ground would be fruitful. And, and the crops would grow. And there would be abundant food for, for man and animal. And so he was living during that time. And certainly in the delta, this, you know, the, the crop, the, the, um, the herds were multiplying as, as the grass grew and there was plenty for the animals to eat and, and uh, this, these vast herds were again growing. And, and so Jacob could look over what was his uh, domain and, and really feel blessed of God. And of course, Egypt itself was experiencing new prosperity. Secondly, since his son Joseph ruled the land, Jacob could bask in the comfort and the glory of the reality that his hopes, his dreams, and his prayers that he one time thought were totally shattered and gone were being fulfilled beyond his wildest imagination in Joseph's life. Now, God likes to do those kinds of things, by the way. God, God likes to blow our minds away sometimes. He, he just likes to surprise us with joy or to say, oh, ye of little faith, wham, you know. And, and certainly that, that was something that Jacob, I, I can hardly imagine Jacob going to bed at night without thanking God again for what he had done. And then thirdly, peace and security characterized the final years of Jacob's life. Shalom, true shalom, that deep, sense of contentment and tranquility. As, well, let me, let me just turn to it. You, you're familiar with the verse in, in uh, John 14. Let me just read it to you. John 14, verse 27, Jesus is talking about oneness with the Father, talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then he says in verse 27 of John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Just reading that reminds me of uh, the account that you know well, you certainly have read about it, of Neville Chamberlain and uh, Edouard de Ladier, the uh, Prime Minister of England, Prime Minister of France, who met with Hitler and Mussolini at Munich in 1938, and Munich told them, uh, I mean, Hitler told them there at Munich, all, all I want is this little piece of territory where Germans live along the, uh, the, you know, the boundary, the frontier of Czechoslovakia. If you let me have that, that's all I want. And, and so they said, okay, we'll let you have that. And Neville Chamberlain, remember, got off the plane in England, and right into the microphones he said, we will have peace 
in our time. That was in 1938, late 1938. It was not a year before World War II exploded across Europe. That's the world's peace. <laughs> it's the kind of peace we have out there today. You know? It's the kind of peace where you have peacekeepers over there keeping the peace while war is crashing all around them, you know? Peace. We, we saw a little blurb on television last night, maybe some of you saw it too, where they're interviewing uh, several students at a Baptist university in Arkansas. Any of you see that? One of the students was Bosnian, one was Croatian, one was Serbian. Uh, all, all the different nationalities that come from that part of the world where all this fighting is, there were, there were young men and young women there. They all were buddies of each other, and they just couldn't understand what all this fighting was about. They said, I mean, we get along just fine with each other. Well, who cares what ethnic group we're from? And they, they themselves don't understand the warfare that's going on in their own country. And they're very, of course, grateful to be in the United States at this moment. That's world peace. But Jesus gives us the peace, the tranquility, the true shalom, where the world can be crashing down around us, and yet in the depths of our soul, we're calm. We're not fearful. Because what can the world do to you? What can man do to you? Worst that can be done is to take our lives from us. And uh, that doesn't happen unless God allows it. You know, it reminds me of the, of the story that goes back to, the, I believe it was the 1930s, in Russia, when uh, this uh, young man was brought before the local communist cadre for preaching Christ. And uh, they told him, you better shape up or we're going to blow your head off. And they told him to take all his clothes off right there. And uh, he, he calmly said to them, you know, you can't take my life unless God allows it. Oh, the cadre really got mad. He pulled out his gun and pulled, and pulled the trigger and nothing happened. Kept pulling the trigger and nothing happened. <laughs> and he was trembling and turning white. And finally, one of the guys next to him says, cool it, dude. <laughs> can't you see God's working on his behalf? They, got, they told him, get out of here. Well, see, if God doesn't want it to happen, it won't happen. So we have nothing to be fearful of. And so this was the experience of Jacob. God gave him those final golden years that we all look forward to, don't we? Of peace and prosperity, security, which can only come in Christ and cannot come in this world in any other way. How many people do we know who... You know, retire from work, and they're going to spend all these years of retirement enjoying themselves, and six months later, they drop dead of a heart attack. You know? That's what God said. He said, you want to fill your barns, build bigger barns? You fool tonight, your soul will be required of you. Peace and prosperity and security come only through Christ. The growth rate of Jacob's descendants, both during this period of prosperity and then during all the centuries of slavery, was obviously the product of the blessing of God. Some have argued that Israel, during its sojourn in Egypt, could not have multiplied from 70 to the number which is implied, the population which is implied, in the first chapter of Numbers. In the first chapter of Numbers, after you know, Israel is, is, is going out in, into the I mean, leaving, the, left the land of uh, Egypt, and there we're told that the number of young men from 20, or that is of men, from 20 years old and upward was 603,550. 
Now, it doesn't take a genius in mathematics to know if men from 20 to as old as they were in those days, numbered 603,550, that there certainly was an equal number of women in that same age bracket, and from 20 on down to zero, there would be at least an equal number, and so you multiply by four to get about two and a half million would be the total population. And some look at this, especially the uh, liberals who don't want to see God doing anything here, uh, and, and they'll say, there's no way. 70 people just can't become two and a half million uh, during that time because they were enslaved. In the ancient world, the growth rate was lower than it is now, and on and on and on. Well, if you look at current growth rates, of course, um, current growth rates are not what they've always been. But um, there are countries in the world today where the natural increase, which is the birth rate subtracting the death rate and exclusive of immigration and emigration, but the natural increase is 4%. Well, 4% natural increase will double the population of a country in 17 years, which causes a great deal of fear and consternation amongst the global population uh, you know, pundits. Well, Israel may not have had a 4% growth rate, but, but even 3%, which many countries in the world have today. In Asia, in Africa, in, Amer in Latin America, many of them have a 3% natural increase. That would give a, uh, a doubling rate that would give Israel 2.5 million people in 350 years. Well, they were in Egypt well over 400 years. So really, there was no problem with the blessing of God upon that nation for 70 people to multiply to 2.5 million. No problem whatsoever. So the liberals have to just be quiet <laughs> because God knows what he's doing and the scripture is true. When Jacob sensed that his life was drawing to a close, he sent for Joseph. He had a very special request to make of his son. For both sentimental reasons and practical reasons, Jacob did not want to be buried in Egypt. The reasons were, first, his parents, his grandparents, certainly, well, his wives. All these people were buried not in Egypt, but in Canaan. The family burial plot was the cave of Machpelah at Hebron. He didn't want to be buried here in the land of Egypt so far from the others. A second factor was that Canaan was the land of promise. Egypt was not the land of promise. He wanted to be buried in the land of promise, the land that God had said would belong to him and his descendants. And then the practical reasons include, thirdly, to make sure that God's promise would be carried out. We read that in early uh, part of Genesis 46 where God said, I will go down with you to Egypt and I will surely bring you up again. He interpret that, interpreted that as God's promise that he would not be buried and remain in, in Egypt, but that he would be put in the burial plot with his family there at the cave of Machpelah. By the way, I think I've noted this before and those of you who have been to the Holy Land know that uh, the cave of Machpelah still exists today. The problem is uh, a large structure sits on top of it. 
it's, it's a building that's mainly of Herodian architecture, built during the days of Herod the Great. But uh, it, it, it's, uh, to, today, it's a sacred building to the Mohammedan as well as to the Jew. And they kind of alternate who's in charge there. And they're not allowing anybody to go down the cave of Machpelah. Uh, somebody did, a while back, stick a television camera down inside, and they looked around, uh, but they didn't see anything particularly spectacular. But back, I think it was in the 19th century, which was the days of uh, different kind of archaeology than, than today. It was those days it was bulldozer archaeology, you know. <laughs> Uh, rip everything off and take it to the museum in Britain type archaeology. Some people did go down in there and uh, they supposedly reported seeing sarcophagi down there and so forth, but that, that's, nobody's allowed to go down there and actually explore around and find what they might find, whether we would find the bones of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Leah, and, and uh, you know, Rebecca, and so forth, who knows? But uh, the cave still exists, uh, even today. And then the last, finally the last, uh, since he was the father of the 12 patriarchs, it was important that the memory and the tradition of the fathers be focused in Canaan and not in Egypt. It was important that there not be in Egypt a grave, a tomb, or something that would be a magnet to attract the people back to Egypt. Because Egypt was a foreign land. Egypt was, quote, the world, if you will. And, and so he needed to be buried in the cave with the others so the focus would always be back to Canaan, back to the promised land. There would be no attraction to some other land, particularly a pagan alien land as Egypt was. This would be a testimony, of course, to the faith of the patriarchs that the burial ground be there at Hebron for the family. Well, this passage of Scripture also tells us the seriousness of Jacob's thinking here. He was dead serious in wanting to be carried back to Canaan and buried there. This wasn't just a passing remark to Joseph, you know. Oh, by the way, Joseph, it's, if it's possible, you know, can you carry my bones back to Canaan? No. <laughs> he's, he's very, very concerned about this. And so he requests that Joseph place his hand under Jacob's thigh and to swear to do what Jacob asked. Now you may remember this is not a new concept, is it? Back when Abraham was sending his servant, probably Eliezer, but the scripture doesn't say at that point whether it was Eliezer, but sending his servant back to Paden Aram or up to Paden Aram to find a wife for his son Isaac, he wanted this servant to be dead set and completely loyal to the task. And so he asked his servant to put his hand under Abraham's thigh and to swear that he would find or, or he would not take a wife for Isaac from the land of Canaan, but that he would do his best to find a wife in Paden Aram. That was in the 24th chapter of Genesis, and you may remember that far back when we studied it. Those of you who have longer memories. Now the word translated thigh is also translated loins. So it's, it's quite obvious here that um, this had a special meaning. 
what J Joseph was actually doing was swearing upon his father's procreative powers. Swearing upon the very fountain from which he himself had come. And this apparently was considered to be a very, very solemn thing. An inviolable oath. If you took that oath, it was one that you could not, on pain of death, in, in, in the thinking of that day at least, uh, violate. You would carry it out. And you'll notice, uh, get back over there, uh, Jacob's statement to his son. In, in verse 30, we read at the end of it, when he had him do this, Joseph said, I will do as you have said. And Jacob said, swear to me. Make a solemn oath. And so he swore. This was very, very important to Jacob. Now to us today, I don't know about you, but where my bones are doesn't, I mean, as long as I'm alive, I'm, I'm concerned about where they are, but <laughs> after I'm dead, where they are is not important to me. But in, in this particular situation, they were very, it was very important uh, to Jacob for, for the reasons I think that we have uh, already outlined. Jacob, though, requested more from Joseph than just that. Uh, he requested of Joseph that Joseph show him kindness and faithfulness, chesed and emeth. Again, two terms that are often found juxtaposed, loving kindness and faithfulness or truth. He was asking this all-powerful son, this politically powerful son, th this man who ruled the whole land of Egypt, he was saying to him, remember, your first allegiance is to your family. Your first allegiance is to your brothers, your sisters-in-law, to your, your, your nephews and nieces, to this family, to me. That's your first loyalty above all else. I mean, you may be the Egyptian prime minister, but you are an Israelite. And don't ever forget it. He's asking him for continued loving and merciful to bend dependability, honesty and loyalty. Loving kindness and faithfulness, or, or truth, as it sometimes is translated, are, are mentioned often in the Old Testament. And generally they're mentioned as attributes of God. One, one of the most outstanding examples of that, I was just thinking about that this morning when I was going over this, is in uh, Exodus 34, and you remember when uh, Moses was on the mountain uh, to, to face God and to receive the uh, commandments, uh, God said to Moses, he, he cut out the two stone tablets like the former ones, and in verse 5 it says, the Lord descended, this is Exodus 34, 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in chesed and emeth, in loving kindness and truth. These are basic characteristics of God himself. God cannot display other than loving kindness because it is his nature. He is a God of loving kindness. He is a God of faithfulness. He is a God of truth. Nothing that is a lie can, can come forth from the character of God. 
Nothing that is unfaithful can come forth from the character of God. These are attributes of God himself. And Jacob is asking his son to display those attributes to the family. What he's asking his son is that he might be a channel of God's blessing to the family. He already had been. It was Jacob who invited the family to come, who settled them down, who had been providing for them all these years. And, and, and Jacob is saying, don't let it stop. Continue to be that channel of blessing. I like to think of us individuals as God's channels. We cannot be the fountainhead of blessing, but we can be the transmitter of blessing. God can bless others through us. We, we become like a conduit through which the blessing of God will flow to those around us. And if that conduit is blocked up because we've, got, we've turned to selfishness and, and we've become disobedient in some way, when that conduct is blocked up, conduit is blocked up, then the blessing doesn't flow. And, and that's why we need to go before God in prayer for forgiveness. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we might rotor-rooter that conduit, if you will, so that the blessing of God will continue to flow through us to all that we are in contact with day by day. Sometimes that's just a little word of encouragement. That's sometimes it's just a little thank you. You'd be surprised how much difference it makes to somebody who's, who's done something if you just say, you know, thanks, I appreciate that. Or who've, who's ministered to you in some way and, and you just say, hey, you did a good job. You know, doesn't have to be any big deal. Uh, but, but that's a way by which you can bless those who bless you. God wants us to do that, and that's what Jacob is saying to Joseph, that he would continue to be that source of blessing, that expressor of the attributes of God, as much as it's physically possible for a human being to do so, or spiritually possible. We do so, of course, rather imperfectly. But nevertheless, we are God's agents of blessing upon the church of God. Joseph promised to bury his father at Hebron. In fact, he swore this unbreakable oath. Yes, I will bury you in Hebron. Now, when we get to that point, it's going to be interesting to note, uh, Egypt had a different means of preparing the dead than most of the other lands in those days. In most lands, you died, they dug a hole and stuck you in, and that was the end of it. But in Egypt, of course, they wanted to make sure you, your body stayed around a while. And so they embalmed it and, and soaked it and you know, prepared a mummy in effect. And they will do this for Jacob. And uh, so I would suspect that if anybody's, if anybody's body is still uh, in any degree of, you know, servo not serviceable, but uh, <laughs> identifiable condition, that it would be Jacob's. Unless God has, of course, done something uh, miraculous, but there's no reason why he necessarily would. But uh, his is the only body that was mummified of the uh, patriarchs. But we'll, we'll talk more about that later because that whole process is very interesting. Kind of gruesome, too. But uh, Joseph's, Joseph swore the oath. And after swearing the oath, we're told that Jacob bowed before God at the head of his bed. I believe this means that he turned towards the upper part of his bed and that he put himself prostrate on the bed 
and gave to God a great prayer of thanksgiving, that God had given him back his son, and that his son could be a channel of blessing for the whole family, so that he could die in peace knowing that there was somebody behind who could be God's agent of continued blessing to the family. Now that's really one of the hardest things, I think, for a person to do, often when it comes to the moment of death, is to leave behind the loved ones. That's the hard part. Um, if we're true believers, passing on to, into eternity is, is a joy and is nothing to be feared. But to leave behind your loved ones, that's, that's got to be hard to, to no longer be around to minister to your, your sons and your daughters or your grandchildren or maybe your great-grandchildren. And, and certainly that would be difficult for Jacob. And yet it was much easier knowing Joseph will be there and God will use Joseph as God has used Joseph to continue to bless. And I think in every one of our cases we have to believe that God is raising up a Joseph, if you will, to, to minister to those for whom we have prayed and to whom we have ministered over the years. And we just have to die in peace knowing that, that God knows what he's doing. It's God's job anyway, not ours. Uh, once we're dead, it's not our responsibility anymore at all. Just let it go in God's hands, because if anybody can handle it, God can. That's for sure. I guess it becomes a real test of our faith at, at that moment in time. In the NIV, if that happens to be what you have, and certain other translations, you probably read the last word in that verse is, you read it as staff, uh, rather than as bed, which is found in the New American Standard, which I'm using, and in the King James. And, and the reason for that is that um, the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, that's the earliest Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was made about 2,000 years ago in Alexandria, Egypt, that that particular translation translates the Hebrew consonants here as mata, which means staff. You're probably aware of the fact that most, Greek, most of the Hebrew words are just a series of usually three, three consonants. And the vowels are not, not there. And, of course, to those who were writing it, they knew which vowels belonged there. And sometimes there were little vowel markings. But the translators of Septuagint decided that the Hebrew word meant staff. But the translators of the Vulgate, or well, the translator of the Vulgate, who was Jerome, around the year 400, using other ancient manuscripts and some older trans, uh, manuscripts came up with the uh, Hebrew word mita here, which means bed or couch. And, and so that's why you'll find the difference. Now, to me, it's, it's not really terribly critical. The whole account seems to, have been, seems to have taken place while Jacob was sitting on his bed. So it was very natural for him to just roll over onto his bed and to worship God there rather than to stand up and then lean on his staff in order to worship God. Now there is a statement in Hebrews that apply, implies that at least later during the time that he was actually blessing his sons that he was leaning on the head of his staff because it says that in uh, the Greek in Hebrews. But that doesn't apply to this particular moment necessarily. But... Whichever translation is correct is not really going to change the course of history or our faith at this moment, I trust. It's not a terribly critical point because 
The physical position of, your, of our body has very little to do with the true worship of God. Remember what Jesus said as he stood there talking to the woman at the well of Sychar, the Samaritan woman? Uh, Jacob's well, by the way. She was standing there, he, and he was talking to her, and they were talking about, you know, she said, we worship here, and you guys worship down Jerusalem, what's right? And uh, Jesus said, it's neither here nor there, but they that worship God will worship God in spirit and in truth. The physical position or the physical condition of our body has really very little to do with true worship. Now, sometimes a certain position of the body may facilitate our concentration or something, or may demonstrate something maybe that we feel in our spirit. But our worship is in our spirits. If we're truly going to worship God, it's got to be because we have sincerity, because we have honesty, and above all, because we have humility. The scripture says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and then resist the devil, and he will flee. That's what really bothers me sometimes when you hear these radio preachers getting up and saying, oh, you devil, you got to get out of here because we said you have to get out of here, you know. We said? Who are we? We're dinglings. <laughs> Sons of Siva who tried to cast the evil spirits out of the guy, remember? <laughs> he says, well, Paul I know and Christ I know, but who are you guys? <laughs> And he beat the tar out of him. <laughs> Humility has got to be the, the main ingredient as we worship God. And uh, that's why when, when the church is divided and there's arrogance by one group against another group in the church and, and one thinks they're more spiritual than the other, I mean, that just totally is in the opposite direction of what the Scripture teaches the worship of God really is. We're to love one another. We were just listening this morning to Erwin Lutzer as we were getting ready, and he was talking about Zwingli, who was one of the great leaders of the Reformation. And because they didn't believe in adult baptism, immersion of adults, they actually executed people for being baptized as an adult in the faith. And we think, <laughs> We'd all, well, I don't know about all of us, but most of us would be dead now if that were true, you know. Because Zwingli believed, you know, in, in mass, you know, infant baptism, just, just you know, baptism was just kind of like a key, and, and, and it happens as early as possible in your life, and it's sort of like declaring that you don't believe in the teaching of the church to go out and be baptized as an adult. And the whole Anabaptist movement, was focused on this, you know, the rebaptizers, And they got persecuted for it. A lot of them got killed. By whom? Other, quote, Christians. I don't know if they ever stopped to read the scripture, which, which tells us that we're to love one another. How does the world know that we're really Christians? Behold how they love one another. Yes, they're burning each other at the stake and drowning each other because of differences in the faith. Or they're out crusading. Killing Albigenses because, well, Albigenses were really heretics, but I don't think that empowered the church to go out and cut their heads off. And, of course, the church didn't, but certain knights did in the name of the church and, and under the, in, you know, the instruction of the Pope. If you ever want to read an uh, interesting period in church history, read The Life and Times of Innocent III, who was uh, the Pope uh, in the early 13th century. And uh, that'll turn your toenails 
upside down. Bad stuff, all in the name of Christ. Of course, that's what they're doing up in North Ireland, right? In the name of Jesus. If we were to lie prostrate on our faces before God, that in itself does not demonstrate true worship, true worship, unless we have an attitude of submission and an attitude of faith. Before a young man could become a knight in the days of knights in shining armor, he was supposed to dress in white and lie on the floor before the altar of the church with his arms stretched out and his feet together in the form of a cross as a signal or a signification of his identification with the church and with God as he becomes a knight because a knight in shining armor was supposed to be dedicated first to God and then to his uh, suzerain, his Lord, and, and on down through the, the list. And it, you're just a total misinterpretation of what God was all about. In fact, the whole concept of a medieval uh, crusader or a medieval knight was based on a, a modification of who Joshua was. Joshua, who led Israel into the land, was converted in their thinking to a knight in shining armor. Well, I, I, you know, Joshua might have liked to have had shining armor and the rest of the things that medieval knights had had. But uh, Joshua was definitely not a knight in that sense, but a man who was a true servant of the Lord God. Well, this brings us to chapter 48. And uh, what I think I'll do is we'll just read the first a few verses of 48 chapters so that you can be meditating on that day and night until next Sunday. <laughs> and then you can teach the lesson. Chapter 48, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Paden, Rachel died, to my sorrow, in the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And let me just point out one thing for, for you to note as we close. Notice that in verse 1, it says that Joseph took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. And later on in verse 5, Jacob says, Your, your sons are mine, Ephraim and Manasseh. And there's significance to the order there, and we'll note that next week.